What's up, guys? We are back, and I am pleased to introduce our special guest for today, a friend of the show, a friend of mine. We've seen him plenty of times, and you've seen him all over Twitter on his Twitter tirades and rants. Please welcome Greg Foss. Foss Boss, how you doing, man? Sorry, boys. I'm in North Bay, Ontario, visiting one of our power plants, and I can tell you what a thing of beauty watching Bitcoin being mined in real time. Very, very cool. Paint us a word picture. What happens? You walk in freedom just hits you from all sides it's uh i tell you what it is a little bit of that it's uh it's it's i love the humming humming means things are happening and there's a lot of humming going on so uh yeah happy to be here guys sorry about the technical issues um let's chat however you want this conversation to go i love it like we've talked previously about this actual energy plant that you're at and would love it if maybe you shared what kind of energy you guys are utilizing and how you started incorporating Bitcoin mining into all of this? Yeah, great question, Q. So here's, we're at what's called a peaker plant, okay? So this plant is attached to the TransCanada Natural Gas Pipeline, which runs from West Coast to East Coast Canada. And it was built for the specific purpose of peaking to grid. But we bought this plant and it's a 35 megawatt plant that we can turn into 100 megawatts and we will do that over time. It's run by natural gas because it's tapped into the TransCanada natural gas pipeline. And we are currently mining Bitcoin here. The beautiful thing is though, when the grid needs power, we have this switch since we own the assets that we switch and peak to grid and get paid a better revenue stream from peak power rates than we would by mining Bitcoin. So it helps to support the grid. I'm just seeing uh, it helps to support the grid because it's there for excess power requirements. But that's about eight days of the year. So cool. eh? Only that. So the other 357 days of the year, we're mining Bitcoin. And it's a stabilizing factor for the grid because the grid needs a base has a base load demand but in hot summer days when everyone's running their air conditioners and what they're currently exper- experiencing in texas right now brownouts uh this this plant uh protects the population against brownouts and we have four of them and total capacity is over 400 megawatts uh, one of the plants that's going to blow your mind, we use hydro miners that can draw Lake Ontario water at four degrees Celsius to run through the hydro miners. And it basically turns a 200 megawatt plant, doubles its efficacy or its efficiency into a 400 megawatt equivalent mining Bitcoin. Holy shit. Holy shit is right. Like this is some top notch engineering. These are solutions that provide value to the energy ecosystem and the uh, ESG movements. And I'm not going to greenwash you guys, but here's some of the stuff we're doing. We're carbon capturing and we're putting the carbon back into the soil used in greenhouses that we're going to grow leafy greens in using the excess heat from the Bitcoin mining. So, you know what? I mean, look, Bitcoin's only 13 years old. You can tell all these other Fudster energy illiterates They're fucking morons, okay? This is real-life stuff that we're doing with real-life energy, and we're doing it 
to support the existing electricity grid, which, by the way, powers your cars, people. All you guys that are tree huggers out there that think that, uh, you know, electricity, just uh, an electric car all of a sudden is some magical solution. Hey, you need electricity to power those cars. Um, this is part of the solution. Bitcoin solves this. And it's very exciting. I love the idea of growing greens with with the exhaust heat from miners. I, uh, I've got my own like very, very small, like maybe, let's be honest, one single uh, miner uh, yeah. operation running in my house. We have rabbits and uh, we have this nice little rabbit hutch and we're using the exhaust heat to yeah. uh, heat them during the winter. And I feel like I'm giving back to America and the children and uh, also Christmas. So Isn't this cool? Because you can use the, on one side, side of the wall it's about 21 degrees celsius which is about 70 degrees fahrenheit and on the exhaust it's literally 120 degrees fahrenheit it feels like you're sitting in a sauna and you take that heat you run it through a greenhouse and you start uh solving all sorts of things like 50 dollars a bushel for cherries that's what we're paying in canada right now so like this is just crazy right like uh, or maybe it's not a bushel i don't know what the what the the unit of account is for cherry uh cherry weights but at the end of the day it's outrageous and uh you can uh you can and where we are right now we're north of the 45th parallel okay in the winter time there's like eight feet of snow here and this is all stuff that this would work a hundred uh, sorry 365 days of the year um and the revenue stream is only possible because the bitcoin mining is utilizing the 300 they don't need to peak to grid. Uh, that's that's very interesting. Well, I could go on, I could go on a tirade about the sort of like bullshit ESG narratives that are being like, you know, shoved down everyone's throats. But uh, you mentioned the idea of um, making the existing electrical grid more efficient. Specifically, you talked about how the electrical power plants have to be built so that they have significant excess capacity because the electricity loss, the power loss, when you transmit that electricity across the power lines is significant. So you have these power plants that are producing, what is it? It's like 30% uh, more electricity than they can ever actually use because they need to be able to produce elect enough electricity. No. Hmm? Oh, that's fair. But here, here's the reality. You have a base load. And the grid is built for a base load plus. But the reality is the cycles when you have all, you know, the hottest days of the year, the grid is not built to uh, withstand that draw on the on the power. And you need peaker plants, plants that are specifically built oh, to go on standby. I okay, see. so you'll have a base load. And, and by the way, the base load varies according to whether you have nuclear generation because you don't power up and down nuclear generators okay they are producing power at the same rate yeah. uh turbines through a hydroelectric dam they're turning okay and here's the craziest thing there are actually instances in canada where because of our nuclear power generation at one station in ontario there are times when we have to pay not sell at a discount. We pay Americans to take power from us. Because if you're generating this power, but it has nowhere to go, you can blow up the grid. Okay, so you need to find outlets for this generation capacity. 
That's why the grid, you know, producing too much power is just as bad as not having enough power. So it's a very fine balance, even though this is what your energy demand looks like during the day. And you need to you need to continually balance those loads. Okay, it's called load balancing. And this is where Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin, the revenue streams produced by Bitcoin miners can smooth out the inefficiency of building a nuclear plant. But sometimes you don't have enough draw so that you're having to pay a 20 year time frame, capital investment time frame for a nuclear power plant. There's tons of times when you're wasting power based on your base load. Hey, there are solutions to that now, thanks to Bitcoin. And it's a beautiful thing. Greg, what is, of all the ESG FUD that gets thrown around, what is the one that just, you can't shut up? You overhear it while you're in line waiting for your coffee. Someone says it. You're like, uh, slam the coffee down at Tim Hortons. Absolutely nah, it's, not. It's, it's, <laughs> you know what the, the one, it's, it's that the ESG narrative gets so much, you know, this one that I saw sent around by a uh, professor the other day. This is crazy. An economics professor that was, it might have even been Krugman, that idiot, okay? The, the you know, an, install, uh, an endowed chair at Princeton University sends around some sort of ridiculous fudster stuff that says each, uh, there's only seven transactions a second and each transaction takes as much power as a, a family home. Okay, what a friggin' moron. Okay, if he even thought for two seconds about what he what he sent around, he'd realize that you know it's impossible to have that much power in the world, let alone that much power generated for the Bitcoin mining network. Bitcoin mining takes one half of one percent of all total power generated in the world. Yes, it is bigger than some countries. But quite honestly, it's way more important than some countries as well, right? For freedom and security and everything like that. Just look at the mathematics. So Q, the thing that bugs me the most is people who send out this drivel without even considering the mathematics behind it. Okay. Every single Bitcoin transaction takes as much power as a single family home. If the guy thought about that for two seconds, he would realize that's impossible mathematics. Yet... This is what they do. They send out this stuff because some misrepresented engineer uh, is just sitting, uh, sat down and, you know, got a zero put in the wrong place. Right. It's like, you know, not understanding that 21 million Bitcoin is 21 million Bitcoin, regardless of the fact that there's eight digits on the right hand side of the decimal place. People are very poor at mathematics. It is endemic in our population and so that sort of stuff drives me crazy as an engineer engineers tend to get this quickly the law of conservation of energy applies everywhere and secondly and most importantly engineers are comfortable with math where most of the population their eyes glaze over when you start talking math and that's unfortunate because math is the base layer of language which means most people are illiterate to the base layer of math of, of language Jeff, there was a, a bit of FUD going around that I think most, if not everyone, has commented or, or tweeted out in response to essentially saying that the fact that Bitcoin can be divided into 100 million little pieces <laughs> is what makes it not valuable. Uh, I, I loved your response to this C CPA or CFA, but would love to, for you to just maybe you know, further explain why math just makes sense here. 
Well, okay. So what a what a poor. I, I hope he was joking, and it turns out he wasn't. Right? He gave the old. Uh, how could something? Uh, and he's a CFA now. CFA Chartered Financial Analyst. This is three years of intense training to get that designation. Okay. I have my CFA level one only. That's all I needed to manage money. But I also have an MBA. The question is, which one is more valuable? Well, in my opinion, the CFA value just went down by about a half because this moron tweeted out that how can something be called scarce if it can be divided into 100 million parts, right? This guy doesn't understand math, yet he has this designation called CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. Well, no one should listen to him because finance is all math. The funny thing is, it's like the pizza. We, if we can divide one pizza into 100 million pieces, we can feed the world. What kind of silly mathematics is that, right? If you don't understand the difference as to what digits appear on the right-hand side of a decimal point versus the left-hand side of a decimal point, you should not be a CFA. You should not be a prime minister of Canada. You should not be an economics professor. But there are plenty of those in all sorts of nations that don't understand math. And this is really unfortunate. So do you think that it's truly just these people are fucking idiots? Or do you yes. think it's malicious? How else can you say it? It's not idiots. It's intellectually lazy. Not understanding and not thinking about for two seconds that dollars can be divided into cents. They can be divided in one decimal point or two decimal points doesn't mean that $1 goes any farther just because it's divided into two decimal points. And theoretically, you could divide a dollar into eight decimal points, but it's still only $1. But how can the you... difference is Satoshi is a beautiful computational machine with eight decimal points. Most people lose it. They just say, I don't even understand what you're saying. And that, from an engineering perspective, is like, okay, you're not that smart. So just shut the F up and let engineers solve the problems. Not everyone can be an engineer. By the way, I'm an engineer, but I'm not a good one. Michael Saylor's an engineer. He's friggin' intelligent, all right? And he gets it. I'm sort of a, uh, you know, I'm a solid B-plus engineer. Michael Saylor and these other rocket scientists, they're off the charts smart. The good thing about Saylor is he's the only rocket scientist I know that can actually converse in a regular language. Most of these rocket scientists are like, you know, pi squared and uh, QQQ, what's the square root of three? And a uh, fucking hilarious. Like, it's just not, you know, they're just so smart that you can't really converse with them. Michael Saylor, you can converse with him because he can speak the regular language as well as the rocket science language. So well said. I mean, Look, you are you are very famous for reminding everyone that it's just simple math, and when you actually stop to do the math, you can see why this works. You know, there's been a debate that I personally have been having now for about a week, and I don't know, maybe I'm just really bad at debating. So that that was part of the reason why, Foss, I needed you to come on the show because <laughs> I have a friend watching right now who genuinely is stuck on the idea that Bitcoin is the Ponzi. And, yeah. you know, welcome, I've welcome to the show. At least he's doing some intellectual, intellectual research. Okay. The fact of the matter is fiat is the Ponzi. Okay. You got to understand that fiat is the Ponzi and they don't teach you this in school because if they did teach you that the fiat was the Ponzi, you'd never deposit your money in a bank, a commercial bank, because you'd realize it's actually not safe. 
Okay. The only way that that depositing money in a commercial bank is safe is because it has a Fed backstop or a central bank backstop implied. It's too big to fail. Therefore, you can lever banking 25 times its equity base. That's what a commercial bank is levered 25 times. Okay. So if you learned that in school, you'd be like, holy shoot. I don't want to deposit my money in a commercial bank. It's actually not that safe. And if it is safe, the only reason it is safe is because they can have print unlimited amounts of money, which means the value of my money isn't actually that valuable because there's no scarcity to it. So you really need to understand this. Okay. You got to understand and go to our website, lookingglasseducation.com. Okay. Q, you can send anybody to that website. And you will learn how real finance is taught rather than what you're taught in these bullshit Keynesian brainwashing schools, including Ivy League institutions, where, by the way, I went to school. Okay, these stupid Ivy League fucks have no idea what they're saying because they're taught by professors like Krugman. That is criminal. So. You got to actually do the real math. You got to understand how the Fiat Ponzi works, which starts with commercial banks that are levered 25 to 1. And when you're levered 25 to 1, which means you can only lose 4% of your loan value before you are insolvent on your way to bankruptcy, how often do you think a loan loses more than 4% of its value, gentlemen? Trust me, it happens on a regular basis. The commercial banking system is regularly insolvent and people don't know. But it's happened. 1988, when I started my career, Latin American debt. 1998, because of uh, the long-term capital management. Okay, A Nobel Prize winner who was running long-term capital management and selling insurance to the street. And they were 100 to 1 levered. It's like people didn't do any math. They were buying insurance from an insurance company that was 100 times levered to its capital base, and they thought it was fine. That's part of the Fiat Ponzi. Wall Street was rescued. Losses were socialized because nobody did the math as to the reality of long-term capital management. Because said, oh, the guy's a Nobel Prize winning professor. He must know what he's doing. No, he didn't know what he was doing. He brought Wall Street to its knees. That was the second one. The third one, the great financial crisis. Everyone was insolvent. Everyone. And the TARP Troubled Asset Relief Program, which the Fed printed $700 billion to rescue the system. Guess what? The last and final one was COVID. They printed trillions of dollars. Multiple times what they printed to rescue Wall Street in the great financial crisis. That's where we are. Learn that fiat is the Ponzi people and successive financial crises will happen more quickly. They'll happen with greater severity and quantitative easing infinity is a 100% certainty, okay? All this bullshit that the Fed's out there, they're gonna fight inflation. They've either done the math and they realize that it's nothing but job owning or they are gonna bankrupt the country. One way or the other, all paths lead to Bitcoin, okay? You bankrupt the company, country, your dollar's worth nothing. You print QE infinity, 
Your dollar's worth nothing. You need to hedge the fact that your dollar is worth nothing under all scenarios. But they'll keep printing it as long as people think that's the solution. And that is the Fiat Ponzi. You need to understand that 21 million decentralized math and code is a thing of beauty. And that is Bitcoin. It solves a lot of stuff, including intellectually challenged economists that don't even know mathematics. Love that. Super and easy. Michael Burry, here's the thing. Only a few of the likes like Michael Burry, he's a horrible risk manager. Okay. Michael Burry is a horrible fucking risk manager. He might be very smart, but he should have stopped himself out of his trades way sooner than he did and then re-entered them at the right price. He just was very, very stubborn and got rewarded in the end. But that's not how you manage risk. And that's another reason he's intellectually lazy. He doesn't understand that Bitcoin is actually the solution to the subprime mortgage crisis that he identified the first time around. So tell Michael Burry to learn some fucking mathematics and also to learn how to manage risk because he's a shit risk manager, okay? I will stand by that. He is a shitty risk manager. Don't send hate mail if you love Michael Burry. Go pound sand. <laughs> Woo! Foss came to fight today. I love it. I love it. Foss, the Fiat Ponzi, in my opinion, is slowly unwinding. We are seeing now inflation numbers that are indicating a new 40-year high. The unemployment number they want you to believe is at all-time lows. But then if you look at other variations, mind you, this is all U.S. domestic. Sorry, we don't worry about the uh, neighbors up north as much down here. But We don't matter, though. You're right. We don't matter. <laughs> Ooh, no, so we don't. Cold. So cool. No, no, we're, we're, our, population is less than the, our population is less than the state of California and our economy is smaller than the state of California. Should we matter? Yeah, a little bit. But on a, on a, on a country basis, yes, we're a G7. The funny thing is, if California were separated from the U.S., it would bump Canada from the G7 because it's bigger than Canada. And yeah, if that's... Texas was separated from the G7, Texas would be bigger that would be a G7 country as well. It would bump all these other, you know, here's the funny thing. The United States is so powerful. And that's why, because it has individual regions in the, in the United States that are bigger than most developed economies in the world. It's un friggin' believable. And by the way, you guys are fucking it right up. Okay. So you can say whatever, but you guys are fucking it up because you think that you are in a privileged status that can never be taken away from you. Wrong. And I don't want that to happen. But if you don't start smartening the fuck up, you will lose global reserve currency status. Global reserve asset status of U.S. Treasuries is already gone. Okay. You've seen global reserve banks, central banks, take their U.S. Treasury holdings from 72% of reserves down to 59%. Guess where it's going, people? It's going lower. The US Treasury as global reserve asset, US Treasury bonds, it's over. What's gonna replace it? My opinion, Bitcoin, if you guys get your head out of your ass, but I don't care. If you guys don't, other countries will. Maybe we should all start learning to learn to speak Spanish because South America seems to get it. Before we dive into like just the endless chaos that is the world economy right now, you bring up an excellent point. It, it's on the U.S., it's on these developed 
more established, I think, global economies to really take a hard look at Bitcoin and understand what it what the opportunity Bitcoin can present both the government officials and their citizens. But they benefited from this system, so why would they change the system that they've so so luxuriously lived off of? Except you know, they're they gonna lose it, Q. If they don't, Absolutely. they're gonna lose it. Okay. And this is this you can adopt the Bitcoin and treat it like your savings account and keep your checking account, which is your fiat reserve currency, functioning so that the world uses US dollars for things like global trade. But as far as a savings technology, you better change. Because if it doesn't change into Bitcoin, it'll change into, and it already is, oil. Now everyone says that gold is your reserve asset as, as a hedge. No, you know what it actually is? It's oil and natural gas. And Vlad Putin, despite all the shit that he's doing in the world, he has this figured out. And he knows he can use oil and natural gas as a weapon. Okay? So what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is digital energy. And what is oil and natural gas? Well, that's natural resource energy. So doesn't it make sense that wealthy nations with natural resource energy, consider selling it for Bitcoin rather than U.S. dollars, especially when they freeze your reserve assets like they did on Russia. I'm not defending what Putin did. I'm just saying if you have all this money saved in U.S. treasuries and all of a sudden you can't get to them, that's not much of a reserve asset, is it? By the way, why would you ever sell then oil and natural gas price in U.S. dollars? The USA doesn't realize how lucky they are to be able to print US dollars because effectively, what does that mean? They're able to print oil and natural gas. Wow. No wonder you guys are so friggin' strong. You can print energy as long as energy is priced in US dollars. But as soon as it's not, you better get on board the Bitcoin train, people, or you're going to be like, you know, demoted. Because your resource energy is nothing like that of Saudi Arabia or uh, Russia or the, the other economic powers that have much deeper natural resource supplies than the United States has. You, you touch on oil. We touch on the Middle East. We touch on South America. We're starting to see areas in Africa slowly adopt Bitcoin as well. Is there a region in particular that you're paying close, close attention to? As South America. I mean, look, there's 220, is there 250 million people in South America or that speak Spanish and then a not, whatever Brazil is that speaks Portuguese? Anyway, look, it, it, its population rivals the United States. Uh, its resource wealth is better than the United States, okay? And at the end of the day, you need to go at the, at the end of the day, you need to understand that the world doesn't have access to U.S. dollars like the U.S. population does. It's not in their interest to continue the U.S. dollar as the petrodollar. But it was instituted and it was accepted basically because the USA said, we will defend Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia will price oil in U.S. dollars. That could end very soon. I don't know when, but as an engineer... My gut tells me you better hedge against that potential because it's more likely than a 0% probability. You need to hedge that. 
U.S. population. I love you guys. I went to school in your country. I just got back from a 35-year reunion for Cornell University, literally a week and a half ago in upstate New York. I don't want the USA to fail because they are a bastion of freedom. They just haven't figured out this Bitcoin thing yet. Figure it the fuck out, people, or else you will lose your freedom. I hope I hope someone in D.C. is listening to you for my sake, at least, or, or my future children's sake. Greg, we're watching the entire economy tumble and fall very quickly. We're seeing Bitcoin tumble and fall very, very quickly. We've seen arguments from, oh, it was Do Kwan pushing the price up and down. Oh, it's Celsius pushing the price down. That, to me, doesn't explain what we see in the stock market. That doesn't explain to me oh. what we're seeing in the bond markets. Would love your thoughts just generally on what you're seeing. Sure. So let's start with this. Let's start with the reality that the uh, contagion effects and the uh, systemic risks within the crypto market uh, have knocked Bitcoin down a peg or two, no question, okay? Luna, I felt it survived the Luna debacle very well. So Do Kwan was not as smart as he thought, and his hubris guaranteed that he would get into trouble, okay? That happens on Wall Street all the time. If you think you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in big trouble, okay? But he thought he was the smartest guy in the room, and he was the stable coin king or whatever he wanted to call himself. Uh, at the end of the day, it was a bad model. It was actually the digital it was digital version of fiat, of the fiat ponzi that's what luna and terra were the digital version of the fiat ponzi and when you have a bank run well that's what happens and it was clo you know there was no weekend where you could close the luna uh uh blockchain like they close wall street and then get things uh straightened out over the weekend and have some sort of rescue uh, it didn't happen. There was no rescue. $60 billion of wealth evaporated, which was about the same amount that equity holders lost on Lehman Brothers. But the reality was Lehman Brothers was a debt situation. It was, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt that had connected counterparty risk that caused a uh, contagion on Wall Street. Luna came and went. Uh, there was no rescue. Uh, Bitcoin fell because there was selling to defend the peg, but TikTok next block, nothing happened to Bitcoin except the price went down. And, you know, people got uncertain and come along the Celsius network. Again, another poorly designed DeFi protocol that should never have gotten out of the gate, save for funding from stupid Canadian pension funds like the Case de Depoy, Plasmans, Quebec, that funded their Series B round. But God forbid they should own any Bitcoin, right? So these are the idiot Canadian pension managers that put money into the uh, into the Celsius network seed capital round. Anyway, you get what you do deserve. If you don't do your research, you get what you deserve, which is a bagel on the value of your seed equity. But the reality is this second punch coming in quick succession to the first punch, Luna, knocked Bitcoin down again. TikTok next block. Here's the funny thing. It's keeping working. The health of the network is identified. The DeFi protocols will all fail. Those aren't my words. Those are NYDIG's words. Every single DeFi protocol that exists right now is at high degree of likelihood of failing. This is healthy for the Bitcoin network long term. Short term, you got contagion effects and systemic risks just within the so-called crypto universe. 
you know what? There's a trillion dollars of crypto assets in the world right now. One half of them are in shit coins. A lot of those shit coins are going to fail in the short term. Do you there think- will be some potential pressure on Bitcoin. Then we could talk about the economic effects of the bigger TradFi markets if you want, but that's the reality of the crypto ecosystem right now. I'm curious if you think that, I see a lot of stuff on Twitter. People are saying like, oh my gosh, this is the moment when, you know, the shitcoin ecosystem collapses where, uh, but you know why? Okay, go ahead. Do you really think that's true though? I feel like the shitcoin ecosystem is like, it's like a a horde of cockroaches. Like it is. And you got it's it's part of the 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 uh, unit bias that humans have. Why would I buy a Bitcoin at twenty four thousand dollars when I can buy the shitcoin XRP at thirty two cents? Right? Like, well, XRP's got to be cheap because it's trading at thirty two cents. Again, failed mathematics, failed concept of market cap versus uh, utility versus uh, unit trading price. So. It's, it's going to be a hard lesson. It's like penny stocks are never going away. They're never going away. It doesn't mean you should go out and buy every single penny stock. No, it's the same thing with uh, digital assets that, that you know, uh, oh, I'm the better blockchain. Well, yeah, you are until you aren't. Um, but, you know, you can always sell, sell hope and a prayer in a, in a capitalist system, particularly when you have founders tokens and all this bullshit that incentivize people to go out and promote the new latest, greatest DeFi. But let's move it to the economic level right now. Okay, this is important because financial assets in total are melting down as well. Why are they melting down? Leverage is being removed from the system. Quantitative tightening is removing the amount of bonds that are being purchased by uh, by the various central banks around the world. And they're trying to fight inflation. Okay, they did a horrible job of managing the risk profile of the economy. They printed money out the wazoo and did fiscal uh, fiscal. policy that tried to expand the the uh, the economy at times when there were supply chain you know screw ups there were also the fact that many of the kids don't want to work these days because they're very uh, happy to sit at home and play video games because the government put money into their bank accounts well fuck then you don't get people to work and at the end of the day Uh, you know, you get rising wages and you get inflationary pressures. So the Fed is trying to react to that by raising short-term interest rates. They've done two. They've done two short-term interest rate increases and the stock markets are off more than 20% year to date. That's $20 trillion of global wealth that has been destroyed just because of rising rate environment and removing the stimulus either fiscal or monetary stimulus from the system. We've only done two, and they're anticipating another 14 equivalent rate hikes of a quarter of a percent or higher. Right now, they're jawboning in the Wall Street Journal, which is leaking this stuff, and their stupid uh, jawboning uh, reporter uh, leaking this stuff on the front on, on the behalf of the Fed. Oh, they might do 75 basis points to work that into you know, not surprising the, uh, you know, the markets. Well, heck, you're surprising them because you've done such a horrible job of managing inflation. Inflation didn't decrease last month. It actually increased. And if you measure true inflation, it's much closer to probably 15% annualized than the 8.6%. Okay. So the Fed is fucked. 
They're backed into a corner. They're trying to jawbone inflation lower. And then they're going to try and satisfy the full employment dual mandate. Guys, this was made up by a grade two school teacher. Oh, I want to have full employment and I want to control inflation. Well, you can't suck and blow at the same time. All right. One of them is going to break. And it's my opinion that as we head into a recession, and I think we're in a recession right now, as we head into a recession, Powell is going to either be the Great Depression central banker, or he's going to succumb to pure mathematics, which is the Luke Groman outcome, where we invoke yield curve control at, let's say, a U.S. tenure of around 3.5%, and we have economic growth fueled by inflation of over 15%, which means inflation's running at 15% and you're getting 3% on your bonds. Anyone who owns a bond in that is being financially rep re repressed. And that's the IMF playbook for countries that have built up deficits or total global debt to GDP that are unsustainable from a mathematical perspective. You have to repress the bondholder. The bondholder had 40 years of good returns. You can either blow up the economy and try and fight inflation by letting yields go to a level that absolutely invokes depression, or you can invoke yield curve control and financial repression to the debt lender, which are is $400 trillion in the globe, $400 trillion of global debt, you guys are screwed. You pick one or the other. You can't have both. Pick one or the other. All paths lead to Bitcoin. Greg, I want to unpack what you just said, because I think while this has been the IMS playbook for generations now, this is really Well, not generations. Only since we exceeded 100% of, 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 uh, of debt to GDP ratios in the G7 countries. In the G7 or when did that? any country? Well, it, okay, it's only gotten serious because it's G7, right? The economies that run the right. world. Argentina, I always say this, and for the Bitcoin bingo, the FOSS bingo players out there, mark this down on your bingo card because you're so stupid. You, it takes me four times to say it for you guys to understand what I'm saying. Argentina has, has defaulted four times in my financial career. Another way of saying that is they've never issued a 30-year bond that has matured without defaulting in my career. Yet they still have guys that will buy their 30-year debt. Yeah, They're what fucking the fuck? stupid, okay? Like if you're that stupid that you're going to continue to finance this Fiat Ponzi by buying 30-year debt from a serial defaulter like Argentina, you deserve what you get. But never has there been a G7 country that's defaulted. The one that's at most risk right now? Canada. Because we have a buffoon as a prime minister managing our economy who says stuff like the budget will balance itself. Doesn't work, Q. Budgets don't balance themselves. And I know he's mathematically challenged and I'm sorry that he doesn't understand math because he's admitted it and he has a learning disability. He shouldn't be managing the country, okay? He should not be managing the country if he cannot do mathematics. Very simple. I say the first part in in jest but also if you were serious i fully support this and then i will follow this up with a question but i am fully supporting greg foss to run for president of canada no <laughs> thank you thank <laughs> um, you buddy so i, I want to 
unpack this though, because like, as you point out, this is only now becoming an issue because it's the big countries, the G7, Correct. you know, this is where the global economy comes from. These are the most important people in the world in quotes. And I'm curious if the playbook that the IMF used on a country like Argentina is still valid when it goes towards a country like Canada or even a country like the US, which has the global reserve currency. Like what, what really happens if the US were to turn around and say, we have to default, default because we raise they rates won't. too high. They will print forever, okay? By printing forever, though, that is a form of default. Remember, the, the U.S. has already defaulted. 1971, when they moved off the gold standard, was a default by any definition. So don't say the USA can never default. They defaulted in 1971. I was alive. I know you young kids weren't alive, but I was alive. When the U.S. removed the U.S. dollar from the gold standard in 1971, the Nixon shock, that was a de facto default, okay? By any definition, as a creditor, that was a default. So can it happen again? Yes. Will it? In my opinion, they will just continue to print money so that they won't actually be a physical default. When you have the global reserve currency, though, you can do that. Has other? Is this an IMF playbook for the USA when it broke the 100% debt to GDP number? And incidentally, that 100% debt to GDP only includes funded debt. It doesn't include unfunded debt like Medicare and Medicaid Q, which is five times the size of the funded debt of 30 trillion. Unfunded liabilities over are over 160 trillion US dollars. You do these math, these numbers, it blows your mind that people are so foolish to think that this can continue without continuously printing more money, which debases the value of your currency. It's a penalty. It's financial repression in that form. So you can either financially repress bonds and try and skate on side your total debt to GDP number by growing the GDP at an inflation adjusted amount, but keeping the interest expense on your debt artificially low so that your GDP grows into your debt base. Who gets penalized? Yes, bondholders. Who owns bonds? Pretty well every single pension fund in the US and every single pensioner in the US therefore has exposure to this financial repression. Is there, in your opinion, a, a true limit? We saw Stanley Duncan Miller bring up the idea that like the U.S. can't raise rates higher than, I believe the number he threw out was 3.7 or 4%. I, I believe that number as well. So walk walk our audience and me through like what actually does that mean? You've explained that they're going to print ad nauseum, but, but what is, in your opinion, we're going we're gonna to play a speculating game for a moment here, so please entertain me with this. Like what, what is mainstream media telling you or telling the masses that is going to justify the idea that we are just going to print more money nonstop because we have no other choice because we're so underwater in our debt yeah. that we're drowning unless we do that. 
and you most can't journalists, stop. yeah, Cuba. You know, most journalists are horrible mathematicians, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be a journalist. So, you know, if you're actually really good at math, you probably do something worthwhile in life rather than be a journalist. So, and, and no hate mail from journalists, <laughs> please. Okay, look, there's plenty of good journalists out there. I guess I have yet to meet that many of them. But at the end of the day, look, total debt in your numerator is four times the amount of GDP or your tax base globally. So you have something that's four times the size of your tax base. And that something has a contract on it that pays something called an interest coupon. That's what a fixed income contract is. So that numerator is growing organically just because on the debt. So I'm not even adding on deficits and new spending that the government pretends is paid for because they're forgetting of all the other accumulated debts that aren't paid for. Stick with me here. Numerator has a coupon on it because every single debt instrument in the world has a coupon on it. Let's say the average coupon is equivalent to the U.S. 10-year note right now, which is 3%. Now, that's a very low. All of this debt includes state debt, municipal debt, all of the other structural bonds, everything bank debt in this numerator. It's four times your denominator. If it's a 3% coupon in your numerator, it means your denominator has to go at four times the coupon, 3%. Is global GDP going to grow at 12% annually just to keep pace with the organic growth of the numerator yes or no come on no unless there's inflation right so if it's traditional inflation which is two percent your numerator is growing at gdp plus two percent call it maybe three percent plus two percent is five percent whereas your denominator is growing at or sorry your numerator is growing at twelve percent that's defined as a debt spiral Pretty simple, guys. Fuck, you learn this in grade 11. These are not hard numbers. I'm not bringing out calculus. I'm not bringing out anything. I'm bringing out growth rates of a numerator versus a denominator. You run the math, you realize that the only way of solving that DEBT spiral is by printing more money. It's what's called the error term to solve the equation. If you don't understand what I'm saying, Please don't invest money on behalf of your children because you don't understand math. Get a professional to manage money for you. You're too fucking stupid to manage your own money. Give it to a professional. It's only mathematics. And if you do understand this and you still don't own Bitcoin, I don't know what to say, dude, but you're fucking stupid. I can't say it any other way. And I got to call it like it is. Please don't have children. Kids deserve better adults in the room than you, if you don't understand what I just said. I love everything you're saying so much. I honestly, right now, I'm just typing a message to our video editors because I need everyone in the world to hear that rant. Um, I, I do feel like saying, because I had this thought over the weekend of like, someone was asking me like, what do you do? And I felt weird saying, oh, I host a podcast or I host a news show. So I started calling myself a journalist as of like five days ago. And I thought it was really <laughs> funny when Greg just went on this rant of journalists don't know math. Well, I got an 800 on the SAT. Then so. do it and teach the math. 
and teach people to go to lookingglasseducation.com because it's simple. Guys, this isn't meant to, to, to intimidate anybody. I haven't talked about calculus. I haven't talked about derivatives. I haven't talked about even exponents. I've just talked about pure linear math. Linear. This is so simple. And by the way, it doesn't include, oh, I just found another $2 trillion I'm going to inject into the economy and we've already paid for it. What a fucking bunch of bullshit. You haven't even paid for the last accumulative deficits and you've just found this new money? It's like saying, oh, I just tapped out on my old credit card, but I'm issuing myself this new credit card that has a zero balance on it, so I've already paid for it. You got lying politicians left, right, and center, okay? You got Elizabeth Warrens of the world that are so conflicted, that are so mathematically challenged, and yet people listen to her, okay? This is really scary shit. Thank you. I just want to point out before you jump back in that I noticed you changed your your uh, title to 800 SAT math. I just want to draw attention to mine. I changed mine to 801 SAT math. It's not supposed to be possible, but I just want you to know that I'm better than you in every way. Please, please proceed. That's, uh, that's good. SATs, like it's logic, guys. Like, you know, some people like learn all this stuff and they don't understand why they're learning this math stuff, right? They teach you stuff like, oh, you got to learn the volume, how to calculate the volume of a container and everything. And never in your life are you going to have to use that math to learn how to calculate the volume of a container. But God forbid they teach you how to balance a checkbook or balance a budget or actually take some of the math that you're supposed to learn and understand how to set a budget, calculate free cash flows, calculate return on investment, you know, stuff that actually works. Because how often in your life do you really need to calculate the volume of a fucking bucket? Okay, go fuck yourselves, you stupid education system, and take mathematics and teach the kids what they need to learn, which is how to balance a checkbook, not how to calculate the volume of a spoon and a bucket and all this other bullshit that you're never going to use in your life. Yes, it's all math. Some of it is worthwhile and others should be, you know, for the people that are calculating volumes of buckets and everything. That's what 0.1% of the entire population of the world. Like, how about you teach people, every single person that needs to balance a checkbook, how to do debits and credits and understand how, you know, double entry accounting works and things like that. I mean, we have totally lost the plot here. Uh, there can only be so many engineers in the world. Not everyone has to be an engineer, but everybody needs to know how to balance a checkbook and manage a budget. That is simple. What do you think about the, uh, you can see from my title, I've now changed it to woke math prodigy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this trend right now of like woke mathematics. It's like, oh, this type of math is racist, which is mind boggling to me. Uh -huh. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. No comment, guys. Look, I already have enough haters out there. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of helping whatever minority race, color, or creed feels they are challenged mathematically. I want to help them. Okay. I want to teach the world math. Math is again, the base layer of language. It's like, we want to keep too many people in the dark and then calling it racist. I mean, that's pure drivel. Okay. It's like saying it's racist to learn the base layer of your language. No, I no. could not agree with you more. Everyone understands math. It, the second layer languages, Chinese, French, English, those are second layer. Everyone understands the first layer. Let's make sure it's taught properly. I yeah, very well said. Totally agree. There's something you you just said that it got my head thinking a little bit because 
I'll be honest, in my 29 years on this earth, I've never had a balanced checkbook, but that's due in large part that my entire life and my experience with the banking system has been digital. So it's kind of been handled for me in that regard. And I definitely have overdrafted some accounts from time to time. So maybe I should have. There you go. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's digital or analog, right? Q, I mean, it's all the same thing. You, you need to run a budget. Your, your, your app doesn't do that for you. Your app doesn't know what your free cash flow intake is. It doesn't know how much, you know, you spend on uh, trivial stuff or consumption versus what you should be spent on savings. So when I say balance a checkbook, what I mean is just because you have a hundred dollars coming in doesn't mean you actually have to spend a hundred dollars. The smart thing to do is to put some money away for the future and create wealth for yourself. How do you create wealth? Well, you certainly don't hold it in fiat money. Fiat money is guaranteed to debase. I've used this uh, story. Here's another bingo story for you clowns. Okay. I'm going to say it again. I worked installing asphalt shingles as a 20-year-old kid, okay? That job paid me $5 an hour over an eight-hour day, $40 worth of fiat that was intense work, okay? The value of my work energy went into the house, but it's in the hot, blazing sun. It's dirty. It's time-consuming. It's it's lose tons of hydration. At the end of the day, I got 40 bucks. If I had kept that $40 in fiat money, and I kept it for 38 years because I'm now 58. I just spent in the United States 56 US dollars on a lobster roll and a beer. Think of that for a second. I spent eight hours working in the sun 38 years ago and I got $40 Canadian. And if I had kept it in that fiat for my work energy and consumed it 38 years later, in a beer and a lobster roll, I was down 20 bucks. Holy fuck. The value of my work energy produced that day didn't even get me a lobster roll and a beer 30 years later. That is why you don't store the value of your work energy in fiat money. You need to store the value of your work energy in digital energy. What is digital energy? Oh, yeah. It's called Bitcoin. You can store the value of your energy over time and space for consumption in the future and know for certain that it will not be debased away from you because it's math and code. I mean, I I had this thought where essentially what he's explaining out to to all of you who maybe it went over your head until he started talking about a lobster roll and you got hungry like I did. If you save 10% of your salary every year and do nothing with that savings, it takes you 10 years just to have enough uh, salary saved up equivalent to one year's worth of salary. But you're not going to live off of one year's worth of salary for the rest of your life. So you have to exponentially increase that. So Yes, Q, but can I add, and i sorry to interrupt please. you. Don't no, no, forget, please. though, don't forget if you hold that in fiat, though, in 10 years time, that 10% has been debased by a certain amount from the first year and the same from the second year, not as amount. But by the time you get to year 10, yes, you've saved up an entire salary as measured at time zero. The problem is the value of that money, if you keep it in fiat, is worth, I don't know, 65% of what it was 10 years ago. So you're getting screwed on both ends. Greg, do you mind, I mean, let's think back 
a little bit ago to the days before you were even introduced to Bitcoin, when you were deep into the fiat Ponzi yourself, as everyone at some point in their life was, Bitcoin has not been around long enough for you to be like, I've been in Bitcoin forever. If you say that, you're so full of shit and I'm going to call you on it. But talk to us a little bit about what your thought process or rationale was around investing and saving through bonds. Why through that vehicle over other vehicles that were available at that time? Great question, Q. Let me be clear, though. Look, I never held all of my wealth in bonds, and I still don't hold all of my wealth in Bitcoin. I am a diversified risk player, okay? Um, what does that mean? It doesn't, it, by being a good risk manager, it doesn't mean putting all your wealth in one risk bucket. You need to diversify your risk buckets because you have to manage risk through probabilities and expected values, okay? And this is why I love Bitcoin so much. Some of the Bitcoin maxis say, Foss, if you love Bitcoin so much, how come you're not 100% invested in Bitcoin? And the answer is simple. Bitcoin's the best asymmetric return opportunity I've ever seen in my life. I don't need to be 100% in in order to reap the rewards of the upsides, okay? So again, this is a personal portfolio allocation that you need to determine for yourself. So bonds right now are the worst risk reward opportunity I've ever seen in trading bonds for 35 years. Okay. I own zero bonds. In fact, I'm short bonds right now. Okay. Why am I short bonds? Because I'm borrowing money. By borrowing money, you're effectively short bonds. Okay. Because right now it pays to be a borrower, not a lender. Okay. So first fact, I've never been shorter bonds in my entire life than I am right now. Secondly, I don't have 100% of my wealth in Bitcoin. It's spread amongst a basket of hard assets, but of my wealth, 40% is in Bitcoin. It's not 100, nor do I think it needs to be 100, but some people out there have 100% of their wealth in Bitcoin, and they've seen their wealth get hit lately because Bitcoin is one-third of, of its all-time high. That's what's called asymmetry asymmetry means volatility up volatility down but the next volatile move up is higher than its last all-time high but you got you can't put all your money into it when it comes back down you have to have dry powder to be able to buy it so you manage risk by owning different risk buckets and god forbid yes foss i own gold Okay, send me to prison, you guys. I own gold. But lately, gold has been outperforming Bitcoin. And I'm happy to own gold and other hard assets like real estate and commodities in a time when a diversified basket of these things will perform better than fiat or fiat contracts. And what is a fiat contract? Bonds are a fiat contract. Who are you and what did Peter Schiff do with the real Greg Foss? Okay, hold on now. Come on. Shifty Pete is a horrible risk manager and he's admitted it, right? Because if Shifty Pete only put at least 1% of his portfolio into Bitcoin when it was 10 bucks a share, Bitcoin has gone up 2,000% since 10 bucks a share, okay? Is it 2,000%? Hold on, that's 20 times, 20 times 10. No, it's 200,000%. The point is he could have turned 1% of his portfolio and made his whole portfolio worth at least 10 times its value by having only 1% in Bitcoin. I know he hates it and he probably hates it because he missed the trade at 10 bucks and hasn't been smart enough 
to get his thinking back in order. Okay. Cause he's, you know, conflicted or whatever you want to call him, but he is a horrible risk manager. And there are clips of me calling him a horrible risk manager on a debate. And he laughed it off. Like yeah, that may be the case, but who cares? Well, if you have money with shifty Pete and you have an asset manager that doesn't care that he's a horrible risk manager and he's managing money for you, I suggest uh, either you keep your money there and you continue to go to circus Barnum and Bailey, or you smarten the hell up. And you take your money to a risk manager that actually ha knows how to manage risk and changes their portfolio allocation when the information changes. Okay, that's the mark of a good risk manager. That's the mark of a manager like Lawrence Lapard, who still owns gold, but also owns Bitcoin. And the two of those hard assets are a good performing combination when Bitcoin has a drawdown like it's had lately. He still thinks Bitcoin wins the race and is the fastest horse at the race. But when you have to absorb, you know, 60%, 70% drawdowns in an asset in order to be in it for the long term, you got to diversify that risk, people. I, I'm sorry if you think I'm not a true Bitcoin maxi because I don't have 100% of my wealth in Bitcoin. It's not the way I manage risk. You guys go and do however you want to manage risk. The only wrong answer is having 0% of your wealth in Bitcoin. Anything more than zero, you're actually managing risk according to your risk profile, which means diversify. Do not diversify. Diversification is owning bonds right now. I'm going to ask a, a bit of a prying question and you could tell me to go fuck right off, but you brought up gold, you brought up real estate, you brought up an allocation of 40% in Bitcoin. What else is in the FOSS boss's portfolio? Well, you know, lots of small companies. Uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, uh, proud shareholder of a number of small companies uh, and a not so proud shareholder of a lot of other small companies that have gone to zero, but some of my small companies have actually done pretty well. But I also own publicly traded. I try to identify value on various metrics that allow for publicly traded stocks to have attractive uh, risk reward profiles. One of the stock sectors that's doing incredibly well for me lately is energy. All that stuff that got thrown out because of the ESG FUD and the Larry Finks of the world that told you you should not own diversified energy companies. Guess what the number one performing sector of the S&P is this year? Yes, diversified energy stocks, okay? You, you can't, you, you got to separate, you know, value from price. And that brings up a good point. Bitcoin is more valuable now than it ever has been in its entire history. But the price is not at an all-time high. That should make you very happy if you are accumulating Bitcoin. Now, why is it more valuable than it ever has been? Well, the strength of the network and the hash price is higher. But also, the valuation technology that I use or technique using credit default swaps on sovereign credits as a base evaluator of the intrinsic value of Bitcoin puts Bitcoin at over half a million dollars US per Bitcoin. And when I started doing the analysis, it was over 200,000 per Bitcoin US dollars. Now it's effectively gone up two and a half times from its base level. And the price 
has gone in the actually the opposite direction because Wall Street is treating Bitcoin as a risk asset when in fact it's the opposite. Bitcoin is insurance. And in times like this, the value of your insurance increases. And if the value of the insurance is increasing, but the price is going down and you don't have an allocation to Bitcoin yet, again, I can't help you. I I'm sorry. You're just not a good risk manager. And there's lots of those people out there. Okay. There's people that chase ambulances, they get on the latest thing, they get on the, the Kathy Woods Art Technology Fund at all time highs, you know, and then they get upset because, oh, their market timing is wrong. No, you actually didn't do the math. And Kathy Woods not to blame. You're to blame by giving her money at the wrong time in the economic cycle. And look, I, I can't, you can't blame the manager for you being stupid, okay? You are not doing the mathematics. You got to understand the different risk buckets. That's how I've managed risk for 35 years, and I'm not going to change because so far, uh, you know, I'm still alive and kicking in the risk management business, and there's a lot of other guys that blow up. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm anything special. I just like to play math and probabilities, right? I love that you still have 800 SAT math as your, uh, your title. Dude, um, I took the SATs 12 years ago, and I still talk about it. I'm not letting this go. My kids, if they don't get the one, the one crowning achievement in your life, I get it. I get it. Look, we should. There's all. There's something that all of us have to, you know, be proud of for, and we should talk about. I it a little also, bit. was a former college athlete for all of three three days. <laughs> and good job, Q. You made it. You I'll, I'll think of something else. Some other thing. Oh, and I was like, I guess quasi a junior Olympian also in high school. Those are the things I will never give up on. You, you could have been a contender, Greg. I'm curious, like, what keeps you up at night? What do you wake up in the middle of the night, like, ah, you know, having a nightmare uh, as it relates to Bitcoin, you know? Well, I don't, because if something kept me, then I own too <laughs> much question. of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm comfortable in my analysis. I, I'm going to run through, and then I'm going to have to sign off shortly, guys. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to run through the reality of my price target on Bitcoin versus the market's probability of me being right. Okay. Do you guys want to finish it off on a, on a somewhat, uh, it's, it's not deep, but it's like going to the horse track. It's like comparing yes, your absolutely. investment portfolio to a horse race. Okay. Is that cool? No no so fear. here's what I'm saying. I have a price target on Bitcoin of over 2 million us dollars per Bitcoin measured in today's dollars. And I could get into how I get that price target, but that's not important right now. And the reality is because it's measured in today's dollars and the stock and the price of Bitcoin is currently trading at $20,000. The market is telling me I have a 1% chance of being right on my part price target, right? 20,000 divided by 2 million is 1%. So I'm not 100% certain I'm right, Q and Phil. I'm not 100% certain I'm right, but I'm way more confident than 1%. So it's like going to the Kentucky Derby and you trained that horse that was being given 80 to 1 odds of winning the Kentucky Derby. And you're like, fuck. I mean, I've watched this horse train. I know it's, you know, what it's got. It's second gear and, you know, running towards the finish. And it may not be you know, one-to-one -one odds that he's going to win, 
but it's certainly better than 80 to 1. So what does the owner of the horse do? He goes to the window and he starts buying his horse. And if it was a purely efficient market, that odds that the track laid would probably have come down to something closer to 10 to 1 versus 80 to 1. But it wasn't efficient. There weren't enough people that had the information about the Kentucky Derby winner. So when the, when the betting window closed and the 80 to 1 odds were laid, that guy was making a great risk-adjusted bet. Okay? And his risk-adjusted bet at 80 to 1 odds paid a lot of good freight and a lot of good intelligence. Do your homework. Watch horse racing. Watch how odds are made in life and expected value returns. And learn. And don't put all your money in one risk basket. That's FOSS's rule. You can do whatever you want. If you're so certain that you're 100% right, Go put 100% in whatever you think you are 100% certain of. There's one thing I'm 100% certain of, Q, that fiat currencies will continue to debase. And it's that certainty that drives me to find other assets to hedge that certainty. Bitcoin's the best one. Bitcoin is the best horse at the track, but sometimes the best horse at the track takes a few races for it to win or, you know what? You're not managing your risk profile properly. I think Bitcoin will win, okay? I'm allocating my portfolio accordingly. The only people that I'm concerned for are people that have zero allocation to Bitcoin. And if you're Michael Burry and you have zero allocation to Bitcoin, you're too smart by a half. Go fuck yourself. You made one good trade in your life and you're living off it for the rest of time. Dude, you're a shit risk manager pound sand don't have kids because you don't give a shit about the world i was gonna say tell us how you really feel greg <laughs> well honestly we've said michael burry's name so many times at this point that he has now appeared on my screen um he's notorious on twitter for posting a tweet and then deleting it after he feels like enough people have seen his opinion so uh i did manage to screenshot a tweet of his from three weeks ago uh I will give him this credit though, because he was the one sounding these alarms on personal savings. And he, oh, look. Yeah. He started sharing a chart, and Chris. Then, if he I, doesn't see what the solution is, Q, no, he's only he done doesn't. half the work. He, he just points out, he points out the hole in the same way that he was pointing out the hole in the housing bubble in 2008. He is essentially point, pointing out a new hole in the credit card bubble and, and just it. It goes to show. So what's his solution, Q? What was his solution to that observation? I mean, I think he's genuinely going and taking out a short position right now. That on what? I'm, I say that in jest, but on on Bitcoin, then he's done the math wrong because Bitcoin is the insurance. It's not the problem. Bitcoin no, is he, the insurance. He makes no reference to Bitcoin. Chris, can I share my screen? Is that? It's okay. You know what? I, I he, he has me blocked on Twitter and I, I don't have time for his bullshit. So, you know what? The guy is a narcissist and he's a shit risk manager. I stand by that. If all the people out there who love Michael Burry because he's some sort of hero, you don't actually understand how to manage risk properly, okay? And it doesn't mean he doesn't get his trades right every so often, but you don't manage risk like he did during the great financial crisis by doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, Guess what his unit holders did as soon as they got their money back? 
They withdrew their money from him because they realized he was a shit risk oh, no. manager. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what happens because he put them through torturous fucking remark to markets that a good risk manager would have closed out his trade and entered it again in the future when the timing was better. Fair criticism. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing on in, um, what's it called? In the movie. And to make sure nah, the movie doesn't people- do justice to it. You got to read the books. You got to read the reality. Um, you know, the movie glorifies it a little bit. And even the movie shows how he was, you know, running himself through a wall because he was so frustrated when he had to remark to market his portfolio every time. He was fighting against the big boys. He was fighting against insurance companies that truly thought they were buying AAA risk at 200 basis points, which is the equivalent of thinking you get. 18% on Luna tokens or on US Terra, it works for a while and then it blows up, okay? But just like Luna, the subprime Ponzi continued for a long time. He identified the problem. He just didn't enter the trade properly, okay? And I have nothing against Michael Burry, except that he's giving horrible advice to a lot of people who think he actually knows how to manage risk properly, okay? He may be a good mathematician, but he ain't that good at managing risk and trading. And that's yeah. unfortunate because you need both of them. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you can't manage your, uh, when you enter and exit a trade, you're, you're totally fucked. It's all, you know what, what's the old expression, Phil? Uh, I, was, I was early. That's, you got to learn what that means. means if you, you were, were wrong. early, it means, it means you, were you were wrong. Yeah, Okay. Exactly. How many people actually close themselves out on a trade because they're good risk managers and they were early? Well, you close yourself out when you're making a loss. And if you present your client with, I was early and I didn't close myself out, the client might look at you and say, then you don't manage risk properly. You might have been right in the long run, but your trade size was wrong. Okay? Your trade size was wrong. And this is why I'm so pound the table on Bitcoin. I don't need to be 100% in Bitcoin for my trade size to work out because of the asymmetry of the trade. And you spend your whole life looking for asymmetric trade opportunities. And Bitcoin is the best asymmetric trade opportunity I have ever seen in 35 years. That means you should be long it, not short it. And if you are short an asymmetric opportunity, you may be right for a little while, but if probabilities play out, you're wrong in the long run and you've lost all your profits from the short term and you incur a loss in the long term. Bitcoin is the most perfect asymmetric trade and investment opportunity I've ever seen. If people don't want to listen to me, I'm fine with that. I'll manage risk the way I want to. You go and manage risk the way you want to. Is there, in your opinion, other than Bitcoin, a different way to take a short position against fiat currencies. Yeah, you can buy credit default swap protection against the default of countries. But when you buy that protection, it's like buying protection on Lehman Brothers. So you were right by buying protection, but you bought the protection from Bear Stearns or you bought the protection from AIG. So you have counterparty risk and there was a chance. How about we flip that around? You had bought protection on Bear Stearns, but you bought it from Lehman Brothers. And Bear Stearns 
even though it didn't go bankrupt, the value of that insurance product, you could have exited it at a huge profit. But the problem is if you had bought it from Lehman Brothers, the counterparty wasn't there for you to realize the profit on your insurance product, right? This is the counterparty risk. This is contagion in the financial markets. So yes, can you profit by the implied default probability of the United States without the United States defaulting? Yes, you can. It's monitored in a widening of the default premiums charged on credit default swaps. Just like Michael Burry didn't have to hold a lot of this subprime paper until the eventual default for him to realize a profit. The premium on those insurance products went from very thin to very wide premiums. And as soon as they go from thin to wide, you can sell the, pre the insurance product that you own to another buyer of the insurance at a higher premium and you lock in the gain. That's why you can profit without a default taking place. That's Bitcoin, guys. Bitcoin is essentially a credit default swap insurance on a basket of fiat currencies. And I frequently said this, I said it on Breedlove's uh, podcast and it's gotten some good reviews. Effectively, you're buying default insurance on the United States at fair value and you're getting all the other countries in the world for free. Wow. I love that insurance product because while I don't want the USA to default, the likelihood is that the USA will default sometime in the future. I'm not giving you a time frame, but the reality is all fiats fail. Well, what fiats will fail before the US dollar? Pretty well all of them. And guess what? You're getting that insurance at no cost. You're getting it for free. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to buy it and I'll talk to you in 20 years. Go fuck yourselves, you stupid non-believers. I love it so much. Q, we're, we're, we're basically at the end of our show, Greg. This has been incredible. I see you have Ansel coming up. This is beautiful. I love him a lot. So, uh, so sorry the slides were so late. Just don't swear, Ansel. What? I don't no, want no. to swear. Ansel's Dis not allowed to swear, okay? Because you know, people who swear, it's just because they care too much. And that's all I'm doing is that I care too much. So I love you. I don't you, know what you're guys. talking about. Ansel, don't listen to Greg. Please swear twice as much as usual. Uh, Greg, again, this has been absolutely incredible. I always enjoy the uh, the excitement and, and passion that you bring to all these conversations. Thank you, man. And then everything you say is as always, incredibly astute and, uh, and well put. Really well, I care, it. right? I got three kids and I feel embarrassed the world I've left them, okay? And I did profit from the Fiat Ponzi. And sometimes I don't feel so good about that. And I'm trying to educate people in return that the Fiat Ponzi is what's very dangerous and in some cases evil, especially when these central bankers prop up their friends and rescue and socialize losses that their irresponsible friends on Wall Street bring on the world but all i can do is speak my mind and when i drop a few f-bombs it's because i care and you know what if you don't care and you have children then i think that there's you know some sort of irresponsibility there so thanks for having me guys um i do enjoy talking to the younger kids and you guys get it and this is what gives me hope is you guys actually get it okay i'm a 58 year old fat white guy I am who is to blame, okay? Fat old white fucks like myself are who 
is to blame for the world and the problem that we have. So I'll talk. I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. I'm going to sign off. Go go hard, Ansel, and uh, and I'll, I look forward to our next chat, you guys. Thanks again, hey, man. Hey, Ansel, boss, boss. It's always a pleasure, man. Thank you, Thank guys. You guys. Good night. Thank you.